born in the wilds of the Lancy Street, home of gefilte fish and kosher meat. Hand him it a knife for here's your tea. You flicked him a chicken when he was only three. He sat in the sun on the rocket in the bucket. In 1813, he fought in the honors. Then came the Litvaks and the Galicianers. A figure hugged redskins all over the shtetl. He never lost his head. He never lost his shtetl. He chewed tobacco on the hist on the rocket. King of the Lancy A little tzatzkele called Daisy Fredel. From near and far they came to the hippie Elected him president of the B'nai Mississippi Mazel tov, Dovid Crockett A mazel tov, the mame and the alte Crockett Mazel tov, Dovid Crockett King of the Lancy Street Went out west on his fairly slain. Took along Fredele his vibele chain. Slain on the fleet via an airplane. He got to Las Vegas ahead of the train. He walked up to the crap table with a full pocket. Shot like a gambler, ain't of the world. Up came two sixers and read the geld. He felt very sad, that's my opinion. He would have said Kaddish, but he couldn't find a minion. Do the pocket. the hasten, he went on knocking. Do the pocket. He's back on the Lancy Street. Do the You're listening to Inksuds on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Paul Buell. Uh, Paul is the editor, uh, writer, and more of many volumes. I kind of got lost looking at all of them. Um, the, one of the main most recent ones is uh, Yiddish Kite, as well as Robin Hood, um, People's Outlaw, and Forest Hero, as well as selection of other works, including uh, various collaborations with Harvey Picard, including the uh, Students for a Democrat Society, the aforementioned uh, Yiddishkeit, as well as that wonderful Harvey Kurtzman uh, book from Abrams from about three years ago you did with uh, Dennis Kitchen. And I'm sure I'm missing about 30 other books. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, it's good to keep active. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess I would say that I'm extremely fortunate in coming to the end of my academic career a few years ago, but realizing as I cease to lecture and to write books, uh, mainly read by graduate students and hopefully a sprinkling of, of young radicals, 
that I also had a, a different place to go in which I could reach a lot of people, I hope, under the age of 30, and also people who, ha like me, had been interested and fascinated with comic art all their lives. Now, looking at some of your academic work, um, your primary focus was uh, social history or being a social historian? Uh, that would be true, but it's also true that uh, there was a particular focus on the history of the North American left, and, and most people would have seen, if they saw anything of mine, the Encyclopedia of the American Left, which appeared in a couple of editions in the, in the 1990s and is a, a giant 1,000-page uh, volume with 100 contributors, etc., and other volumes that were uh, biographies, for instance, uh, more or less fit into that framework, like uh, my authorized biography of C.L.R. James, the, the last great figure of Pan-Africanism and my political mentor, I think, uh, biography of William Appleman Williams, who was the great anti-imperial historian of, uh, of, of the U.S., uh, and uh, other things that brought me more closely into the story of popular culture. There are five volumes uh, on the Hollywood blacklistees, mainly uh, scriptwriters, also some actors and, and uh, directors, but trying to get a sense of how the, the left has interacted with popular culture, that remains a, a source of, of great fascination for me. One of the things I was really uh, interested about is your approach on um, kind of documenting oral history, which I kind of, from my own personal background studying, uh, being a history major, um, I feel like it's, in, in a lot of contexts, it's still something that within an academic context not quite understood how to document it or kind of how to validate it or well, well that's right oral history it. is a uh, is a, a field never properly recognized or accepted or institutionally supported within major universities or minor universities the oral history association if one went to a national conference international conference it has fewer phds uh, and fewer people with good jobs than any other academic association in the world, uh, meaning it's a lot of community activists, uh, uh, disproportionately women, I might say, in bad jobs, uh, and people who are just determined to do something because they think it's important to do, some kind of documentation rather than because they expect some grand academic promotion or bestseller or something like that. Uh, I founded something called the Oral History of the American Left in the mid-1970s and interviewed, along with my colleagues, uh, more than 100 uh, octogenarians, real old-timers who had the European background. They'd immigrated around 1920 before, mainly, uh, and others, African-Americans, who uh, had gone through the 1920s and 1930s, and they were in their last few years of life and they wanted to tell the story that had never gotten into the newspapers and the magazines, even those of the left, because they mainly were rank-and-file people or they worked in communities that were predominantly not English-speaking. Mm -hmm. And like yourself, Robin, I imagine you found oral history to be something that is a, a wonderful process. It engages you with subjects in a way that you could never approach otherwise. Uh, and for me, was a great subject to teach uh, my students at Brown University, uh, uh, 
partly because I got them away from the campus, but also <laughs> because I was able to document the history of the labor movement, of the little tiny state Rhode Island, and also of its counterculture. There's a website called Underground Rhode Island, if anyone is interested in this, which documents pretty thoroughly by interviews and photographs and so forth uh, what is the subcultural life of a place without much active progressive politics but with a thriving counterculture from the 1930s until the present day. I was looking, reading through the Robin Hood book, um, which I guess is kind of analysis of the themes of Robin Hood and how it played throughout different kind of literary motifs and what it's kind of pulling from. Um, I kind of felt like there's a little bit of that feeding into it as well as trying to kind of get this idea that this Robin Hood's kind of this oral tradition in England. Well, that's absolutely true. Yes, yes. I mean, just consider that from the 16th century, really until the early 20th century, and a little bit beyond, in dozens of villages in the UK, uh, there were these May Day festivals every year, and somebody plays Robin, somebody plays Marion, somebody plays the Sheriff of Nottingham, and local people, you know, waited years to get these parts. And, of course, it's a celebration of the struggle against the sheriff and against upper authorities. It's also a celebration of May Day and fertility, as, the, as has been true in pagan times. And uh, furthermore, it's a, a sense of this continuity of uh, defense of the forest against the incoming uh, automobile culture. Uh, and so uh, this could only have gone on through uh, oral culture, not to say there weren't from the 16th century plenty of uh, one-penny pages describing Robin Hood's exploits, uh, not to mention all the popular children's volumes from the late 19th century, not to mention uh, later uh, movies and television. It's survived like nothing, even better than King Arthur, like nothing else in the English language. But uh, beyond all that, in a village way, uh, it really is a, a, an oral culture. And of course, as we used to say in oral history, 99% of all human history was recorded in oral history. We're just in this little 1% where things got printed. And even, yeah. Um, with Robin Hood, it, there's an analogy that kind of gives it more kind of cultural importance than, say, something in King Arthur where it's this kind of mythical story, but the Robin Hood story is very much about uh, everyday experience, I guess, and kind of that, that struggle that folks are facing. Well, that's right. I think that what Robin Hood's represented is something that's in the forest or in the desert or on the mountains and is beyond conquest by the, the king and uh, the commercial civilization. And it, it can't win in the short run, but it determinedly exists. And from time to time, it swoops down or comes in and defends the rights of ordinary people against the oppression that they face. One of the big ideas that, that's pushed with the Robin Hood kind of motif is the, uh, the idea of the common, um, the common space. Is that something that you see can be revisited, or is it kind of lost with... I, I think it's re revisited on a daily basis throughout the world. I think every time that uh, people in India are trying to save their, their valley, and for that matter, their uh, uh, rather specific regional religion, from a new dam being put in, 
uh, and wiping out their their culture and their their means of living, you've got a reenactment of of Robin Hood, and those struggles are going on throughout the world. The more so as the ex- increasingly intense pursuit of minerals and oil and so forth is uh, more and more invading and destroying what remains of uh, a primordial or at least uh, least disturbed. Uh, part of the rainforest uh, uh, rivers uh, and so forth and so forth so you know that's a story which is very much right with us and is fought desperately and I hope uh, more intelligently than uh, it could have been a couple decades ago because we have means to uh, assist people and also to take on the, the mega corporations one of the things you do with this book is you include some illustrated work, including a uh, personal favorite of mine, uh, Sharon Rudall, um, as well as Gary Dumb. Um, what's the choice in including comic work in... Well, how- I after I brought out uh, uh, with the whole group around the comic uh, annual World War Three so I don't want to claim too much credit here, after I was able to bring out Wobblies, a, a history of the industrial workers of the world on its centenary, that is 2005, I discovered uh, a new world for myself. I reminded myself how crazy I was about comics as a kid, what Mad Comics had meant to me before Mad Magazine diluted the, the message, uh, what underground comics had meant to me, uh, how I managed to bring out something called Radical America Comics in 1970, which was number four in the production of underground comics right after Zap, um, and uh, that I could do something in this uh, region of comics and uh, not only uh, reach out to my old pals from the underground years, uh, including uh, Spain Rodriguez and and Sharon Rudolph and Trina Robbins and, and others who were my age, but also uh, find younger milieu, specifically around World War III, and then yet younger people, and work with them uh, to create these comics. Sometimes uh, they uh, take no advice from me whatsoever, just the topic. They research and do all the writing themselves, and Sharon Rudolph's close to that. And other times they uh, wish me to do everything, including uh, script and sort of stick figures, which is the way the late, the late Harvey Picar operated. He left nothing to the imagination. <laughs> Incidentally, of course, that's the way that Harvey Kurtzman operated, too. Mm-hmm. Kurtzman would have the... Uh, I've seen... Well, actually, you have that in that Kurtzman where you take one of the uh, little Annie Fanny pages and yeah. do the several yeah. different yeah. versions. Yeah, an astonishingly brilliant production by Abrams, I might say, uh, but also by the uh, production team around Dennis Kitchen, including John Lind, and they deserve a a lot of credit. But I have to say also this book, Yiddishkeit, produced by Abrams in four color, it's a spectacular production. I mean, it's a fabulous production. I may never have anything as good as this again, because Abrams uh, puts in the time and effort uh, to uh, create an item of beauty and uh, it, it's uh, it's a terrific thing, and it won an Eisner nomination a, a week ago, and I'm I'm hoping it will win an Eisner or a Harvey. Now Yiddishkeit, uh, it, it's fascinating. Um, going back to the kind of the oral traditions, it's definitely I feel like pulling together um, this for me being kind of waspy West Coast guy. It's a totally different culture, and it's just kind of jumping into it, kind of understanding these 
different ways of speaking, these different traditions, these different ways of life. Um, it's really fascinating to kind of jump into it. As well, far it's as a big story, but it's a story that in North America only with difficulty got beyond uh, Greater New York and Montreal. Yeah. Those two places, it was very strong for several generations, and and it, with a huge theatrical scene and an active literary scene and, and and so forth. And it's hard to appreciate now that the Holocaust wiped out uh, three fifths of all Yiddish speakers in the world. Uh, that uh, the new state of Israel didn't want Yiddish to survive there and did a good job of, of eliminating it there, and uh, that in the U.S. and Europe assimilation did a, a rather similar job, so that we're sort of down to uh, elderly people, determined academics and intellectuals, and then uh, uh, super-religious ch chazids whose children learn Yiddish, sometimes speak it as a first language, uh, and the number of Yiddish speakers leveled off in the year 2000, but uh, up to 1960 it was overwhelmingly secular, and at this point it's overwhelmingly religious. But this is the story in Yiddishkeit of, of secular uh, Yiddish culture and literature, and uh, Harvey Pekar writes an overview drawn by Dan Archer, a fabulous young artist, which really lays it out beautifully. And then, typical for me, I uh, led the rest of the book in finding artists and writers and so forth who had shorter takes on various aspects of, uh, of Yiddish life and the people who uh, uh, lived them. Was um, kind of documenting this part of the diaspora like something that was always of interest to you, or is this something from collaboration with Harvey? Oh, no, no, no. I Harvey only developed an interest in, in uh, Yiddish kite, although he'd been a ch as a child a Yiddish speaker. He only developed that interest in the last years of his life. Uh, whereas for me, in the middle 1970s, when the New Left had collapsed, and I was trying to figure out what the heck I should do with myself, uh, I uh, set up this oral history project. I began interviewing octogenarians, and the most lively and interesting uh, and insightful were uh, Yiddish speakers uh, who were in their last years of life. And because of them, because of my experience with them, and because they gave me uh, a bunch of books in the hopes I would read them, and because I had a, a background in mediocre German, I wasn't very good, or I was lazy, I don't know which, uh, I was able to learn how to read Yiddish. And consequently, I discovered a world of literature and culture that is you know, not known to so many people, not even Jews. Uh, by and large, and uh, delve into it for my own reasons. But then again, of course, that Yiddish story is at the root of uh, much of American commercial popular culture, from uh, uh, movies to nightclubs to a whole bunch of other humor being comedy, being a, a special area, so that I was drawn more and more closely to it because it connected so much with other things I was interested in, including the role of the left in modern society. Mm -hmm. When putting this book together, um, as I said, you have various folks doing topical things on different characters, different folks. Um, would you kind of give them here, write about this guy, or would you have folks like, say, Sharon Rudolph, who would have a particular interest of someone she'd want to talk about? Well, uh, you know, really both, because... Uh, 
oh, uh, somebody would say, uh, oh, I've been interested in X all my life, but I never went far working on it. Or I saw this uh, Yiddish film. There are only a, a, a dozen that were ever anything like big hits. Uh, and uh, we bring out the one that was the, the biggest hit of all uh, in, in the world Yiddish film as uh, sort of capsulized by Sharon Rudolph. Uh, and in other cases, people are interested in the general subject, but they uh, needed or wished to have me explicate something that would give them a story basis to explore what had been interesting to them anyway. Tell for instance, yeah. oh, I was no, all going to say that uh, Peter, Peter Cooper, a marvelous artist, yeah. uh, he uh, had always been sort of interested in, in uh, the films of the, the, left, the, the left made in the late 1940s, and a particular film that Abraham Lincoln Polanski uh, wrote and directed uh, uh, called Body and Soul, another one of Force of Evil. And so, therefore, he eagerly jumped into this, and I was able to provide the authorized biography that I had written of, of Abe Polanski uh, to him to supply details. So that worked out quite perfectly and, and resulted in several wonderful pages. There's something that strikes me as like it's being a way to kind of resolve, for some folks, maybe like this kind of way of kind of embracing the culture that they may have lost. Uh-huh. Um, like someone it, like it's so frequently the case that that uh, especially in in Yiddish culture that assimilation was greatly desired in the second generation especially or even for the gener second generation by the immigrant parents because they wanted upward mobility for their son and daughter and uh, much was lost especially with uh, the destruction of the Bronx and and forced or willed suburbanization into what's called locks and bagel uh, Jewishness, where there's nothing else but Lox Bagel and, and uh, a few other big parties. Uh, and then another generation comes along and they're trying to figure out what they lost. Because for them, the great interests of, of being Jewish don't involve religion or the state of Israel. So what the heck else is there? Well, yeah. there's popular culture. And yeah. somewhere behind the popular culture is the shadow of, of Yiddish and Yiddishkeit. It's such an interesting way of like trying to maintain or like kind of extract this culture this distinct unique culture um from necessarily religious or the kind of the greater context i don't know i'm fascinated i really enjoyed it yeah i i, I would say that probably is true of, of comics in general you know uh other than the adaptation of of howard zinn's classic uh, uh book on the people's history which i did with the uh, writer dave wagner and artist mike konopaki and has sold fifty thousand, so it's the only big success i can brag about and it's not that big uh apart from that which sort of has the howard zinn brand on it the next most successful is undoubtedly the beats uh, that really is Harvey Picar writing 60% and uh, me working with artists for the other 40%. And why was it uh, worthwhile? Why has it managed to creep up toward sales of 20,000? And the answer is because it met the need of young people who are interested in the beats and heard about them and maybe read a few poems or read one Jack Kerouac novel or something, but didn't have much of a wider grasp. And, of course, there's plenty on the web. There's plenty of big books and so forth. But I think that our, our take through comics is a way of explaining it 
uh, it simplifies the issues in many ways, uh, but doesn't vulgarize them and brings out things that uh, are or seem to us the most vital for the present. One of the things you do with the the Beats book, which I really appreciate, because I'm a big Beat fan growing up. Like, I've got a lot of Burroughs, mm-hmm. um, enjoyed my Kerouac, um, but you also try and focus on other than the big three, other than Kerouac, Ginsburg, and Burroughs. Like, yeah. there's a lot of folks. And um, tell me about the importance of that, of like kind of contextualizing this, because... Oh, here's one one example: is the the uh, uh, two little recognized role women in the beats, mm-hmm. both because they often got the the worst end of things of men who were pretty irresponsible, but also because uh, you know my teenage idol was Diane de Prima. I was in love with her from the first poem of hers I read in 1959, uh, and uh, several times she comes up in a really good way in her unique qualities are recognized. But uh, uh, I would say to me, one of the most exciting pieces in the book is the the last one by Jeff uh, Smith on uh, Tula Kupferberg, because uh, uh, Tuli, Jeff Lewis, excuse me, uh, because Tuli, one could say, continued the the themes and rebelliousness of the best of the beats right up until his death uh, two years ago, this, uh, this coming June. And uh, Jeff Lewis was like a sort of protege of his, and so uh, worked intimately with him on this several pages of comics, and and really, really, really speaking as someone who was in touch with Tooley by letters mostly over a period of 20 years, I think that Jeff Lewis really captured the real Tooley Kupferberg, which is just great. It's just terrific. Do you? Um, you're almost creating your own biography through all these books <laughs> like I feel like it's like looking at that and you know, there's all these linkages towards these movements and these personages like going for the beats and then doing the students for Democrat society and like I feel like there's linkages there they all kind of follow <laughs> yeah, a absolutely line. true and I never thought of it I think that's really really right you know when when I would teach oral history we'd always in the first class or two come to the fact that there's only one charismatic figure in the history of oral history and that's Studs Terkel so when I got an opportunity to do this Studs Terkel anthology of, of artists uh, drawing particular stories from uh, the famous volume Working, I really jumped into it because I had been thinking about Studs Terkel and these interviews, they're some of the most outstanding in the volume, uh, for you know at least 20 years. And in a way, the volume was an homage to Studs Terkel. Commercially, it wasn't very successful, and I think that's because most Studs fans are over 50 and don't never like comics. But at any rate, I'm very uh, proud of it. Uh, and also, as you suggest, it is some little corner of myself, because I don't know where else to go for scripting and editing comics except to myself. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tell me but part of what I was saying though was also kind of there are these linkages between these movements and right. kind of like the importance of kind of understanding this greater idea of um, kind of American radicalism uh-huh. like I see you know with especially with Ginsburg kind of leading yeah. into a lot of the 1960s movements um, oh yeah was that a particular importance to you? The, the oh, beats sure, as a young sure, man, like, sure. I, I, the way I came to publish that third in line or fourth in line of underground comics is I was publishing a magazine for Students for Democratic Society called Radical America, 
which is whose purpose was to reach out to something in the roots in in North America. So we weren't always looking to French people or German people or Russians, for that matter, for our uh, issues, our ways to explain things, and our and uh, constituencies we uh, aspire to reach in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so you know when when I. Uh, got the opportunity, uh, I did a, this comic, Students for a Democratic Society, a graphic history, largely drawn by uh, Gary Dumb, wonderfully drawn by Gary Dumb. And it was a way of going back to the organization I militantly identified with and whose collapse in 1969 positively broke my heart. Um, and I found nothing like it since, as far as a, a mass movement is concerned. So uh, is it connected with my, my life and my political ideas? It's, it's intimate to them. But on the other hand, I want to be sure, if possible, not to be didactic with the comic readers. I don't have the answers, mm -hmm. uh, but I want them to think about the questions. And uh, I want to repose the questions that I've faced politically in my life to a new generation. And may maybe that brings us, if we can move forward to it, to uh, the Port Huron Statement Today comics, mm -hmm. which was created for high school students working with uh, the educational department of New York University for the 50th anniversary of the Port Huron Statement uh, conference, which at New York University just this last weekend. Uh, what shall I say about it? Gary Dumb again, always <laughs> good, always reliable. Uh, uh, drew these 10 pages, and I scripted them. And for your listeners, uh, the Port Huron Statement Today comic is not yet on the web, but I think it will be by the middle of the week or certainly by next week. If you look under the Port Huron Statement Today, I think you'll, you'll find it in a little while. And it simply tries to deal with this classic document uh, uh, written collectively in 1962, drafted largely by Tom Hayden. Uh, what would students 50 years later find in it, since it was so inspirational to me and to students my age in the middle 1960s, uh, what is it that made it irreplaceable within SDS? Nobody was ever able to do anything better. And why does it keep bobbing up like uh, a bit of a ship coming up from the bottom of the ocean uh, every, uh, every five years or so? And, and uh, I think the answer is that it was intended to be a, a non, an undogmatic uh, manifesto for the new generation. It wanted to speak from and for the new generation that was so excited about civil rights, but also deeply troubled by uh, uh, the Cold War. When it was written, the Cuban Missile Crisis was only a year away. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it sort of offered a lot of fresh air for uh, young people who were trying to think about how they didn't want this, their life and uh, their world to go on uh, in its self-destructive ways. And you feel 50 years, things have kind of not changed in certain aspects? Well, I'm trying now to write a, a couple of introductions to the reprinting of volumes written long ago by uh, C.L.R. James and uh, he died at the age of, of 90 in 1989, 88 in 1989. 
And I guess I, I'm trying to find a way to say that uh, although the hopes and aspirations of the 1930s and 40s, great uh, labor movements, working class movements, uh, and anti-war movements really after the Second World War, all those were uh, defeated, red-baited out of existence, uh, and also uh, riven by the despair over the realities of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, nobody would have thought there would be a, a new left in the later 1960s and early 70s uh, finding a new way to pose is issues about the, the, the system. And certainly after the collapse of the East Bloc, there was a great self-confidence that the crises and challenges to corporate capitalism were finished forever. History had ended, as was well known. And then we see in the new century both the imperial failures in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, among other places, and uh, the financial uh, implosion, and then also Occupy. And here in Wisconsin, the challenge to the, the right-wing uh, control of the governorship and the state legislature my latest, actually latest volume is called It Started in Wisconsin. It's a collection of uh, more than a dozen essays, uh, a couple dozen photographs, but also has three substantial uh, comics, several sets of comics pages, which sort of try to tell history from a, a, a different angle, as only comic artists can do. And to respond to an earlier question, I probably don't want to publish any more books that don't have pages of comics in them, because they're not nearly as interesting to me. Um, tell me, try to verbalize this, like a way of kind of understanding without these movements, without these labor movements, um, from the 19th century to present, without the social movements, these left social movements, how much worse things would could be? Well, uh, I, I suppose to, to take the example that, that comes easiest, uh, European, uh, Western European socialist labor and communist movements really created the, the models of the welfare state, the, the uh, state that took care of the sick and ill and, and so on, uh, and gave people generations of decent employment and uh, even in recent times a measure of ecological sensibility. Things are more chaotic uh, in the U.S. And, and in Canada, and we're at a moment of extreme ecological irresponsibility, among other things. But what the labor movement in a place like Wisconsin where uh, state unions are recognized by the state in 1959, so you've had 50 years of that, is a European-style really responsibility for preserving the farmland, for preserving the rivers, uh, for preserving the forests and the animals within the forests, and uh, providing medical care and, and other sorts of things for the ill, the aged, the in, uh, infirm, infirm and uh, generally uh, through education and medical care, making it a pretty darn decent society. Those are great victories, and businessmen, by and large, fought them all the way along. Certainly big businessmen did. So we're proud of that, and we're in the looking and staring in the face of, of it all being stolen away. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the force against it, while in a, in a society that's de-industrialized very largely, turns out to be uh, state workers and health and education who are overwhelmingly women. 
uh, and their relatives and friends and neighbors and so forth. So we're, we're in a new era, and in many ways the historic working class is gone, but on the other hand, in some ways we're struggling hard to preserve what we can, and, and the history of these social movements, in this case actually union movements, uh, turns out to be tremendously important after all. I sometimes wonder, um, and I may be getting my facts faulty, just thinking back to my my schooling and talking about the uh, this kind of the wave, especially with like Marxist theory, where you have the industrial collapse, and it seems like we're having the industrial collapse over and over again. <laughs> In, indeed, only this one a little more final because it's not likely that industrial production is going to return to the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, previously it was an, an economic crisis followed by a recovery, the big one being caused by the Second World War, uh, and uh, then the military-industrial complex being part of the industrial uh, permanence until it disappeared. Uh, and now we have a different kind of economy, and it's China, among other places, that has a massive industrial proletariat, uh, and will have to find its own future, obviously. It's interesting times. <laughs> Uh, it's a terrifying time, but I have not, since the year 1971, been so involved in a, a movement, a widespread social movement, which has demonstrations practically every day, and uh, people are very cheerful, they're very, very funny, they're wonderfully sarcastic about the powers that be, they come up with new funny slogans on uh, the web and in person with signs they made up. Uh, and there are all kinds of other creative things that uh, are close to uh, popular culture traditions. For instance, there's a labor solidarity sing-along five days a week in, in or around the state capitol with all kinds of new words added, but with the same old sort of Pete Seeger uh, sentiment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, the expression of creativity is astonishing. It's as astonishing as the, the problems we face and the, the power of the, the right wing that we face uh, and the cowardice of the Democrats, by and large, is appalling. How, looking at the social movements now, and especially with the, the heavy usage of technology in the Occupy, of being able to communicate so easily, how do you see that changing the movements, uh, the capabilities oh, of the movements? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there's never been a social movement in Wisconsin that's been documented as thoroughly as the, the year-long uh, Wisconsin uprising. You can find dozens of things on YouTube. There's thousands of, of, of photographs on the web and, and all this stuff documenting our struggle, not just the oppression and dangers, but our struggle. So that's already a very big thing. When I started this magazine in the late 60s, one of the things I wanted to do was to document our, our struggle of perfectly ordinary people, not important people, but how that takes place in the most basic fundamental ways. What are the leaflets you read on the street that are interesting, not dogmatic? What are the cartoons that people draw to uh, put in uh, publications or now on the web or on signs for that, for that matter? Uh, how do we understand the social movement in, in its uh, multi-faceted character. Uh, these are things that, that now we can understand, grapple with uh, a lot more effectively. And I guess this is where uh, Port Huron's statement to comics comes in, because 
we want to try to understand what is the relationship between uh, a young person and this document, this historic document. And we sort of made it up. Uh, but I can easily imagine it happening. And what I want to do is to push the process forward. There's something I really love about the fact that it's the the social movements are very collective based. Like when you think of sixties movements, there's still um, a bit of big man theory in there of folks that kind of stand that they're they stand out uh, not particularly for good or bad, but yeah, they had a yeah. presence. Like say an Abby Hoffman, who you know yeah. are arguably was his role positive or negative, or was it yeah. you know showmanship? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't well, see the that. The strange thing is uh, that uh, uh, SDS, for instance, was very, very decentralized. And we, in various chapters, are very skeptical about the national office. And uh, it just the national officers only became famous because the TV cameras turned toward them, mm-hmm. uh, with maybe the exception of, of, of Tom Hayden. But uh, the media uh, played an enormous role in picking out people to listen to and making them seem much larger. Now, on the other side of things, Abby Hoffman was incredibly brilliant at using the media yeah. and creating things that, that only existed in his imagination. Uh, but I think that the, the fact that the camera is now in the hands of thousands of people with cell phones instead of in the hands of five people from TV stations does make an enormous difference. So you have, um, speaking of Tom Hayden, uh, Part of what you're saying with uh, you have the Port Huron uh, comic coming out. You also are doing an event with Tom. Yes, I am here in uh, Madison, uh, uh, coming up very shortly, May third and fourth. Uh, Carl Davidson, who was National Secretary of SDS in the uh, mid 1960s, will speak on the third uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, and. Uh, uh, and Tom Hayden on the fourth, unless I have that just a little bit wrong, and it's actually uh, Tom Hayden on the third and Carl Davidson on the second. In, in, in any case, those who are interested can pretty and who are in Madison can pretty easily find out what they are. But uh, 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 for me, the connection with Tom Hayden goes back now some years, and uh, he uh, is 71 years old. Uh, too many times in office in California to go on being a, a legislator, though he was in the California Senate for 20 years, and uh, has reemerged as a great uh, force for peace with his website on peace and so forth, and urging uh, different kinds of mobilization. I see here Carl Davidson is speaking in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, on May 2nd, evening of the May 2nd, and Tom Hayden speaking on the campus of University of Wisconsin at the Humanities Building. We don't know the room yet on uh, the evening of, of May 3rd. Uh, so creating a sort of Tom Hayden uh, comic aura uh, is uh, sort of important to me because he, he represents a whole bunch of things from the 1960s, and he's perfectly suited for a comic character. <laughs> How does he feel about that? And even he thinks so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Paul. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much. It's been I was delighted to spend the time with you.
I was building a dream And so I'd follow the mob When there was earth to plow and guns to bear I was always there, right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for breath Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Say now it's done Hey buddy, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower Up to the sun Brick and rivet and lime Once I built a tower Now it's done Hey buddy, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki boots She will look swell All of that yay Half a million boots went slugging below And I was the kid with the drum Mr. Valley was a gentleman named Mr. Gene Austin, and in 1927, he made the song famous on the old Victor record label.